that not a single one of us here enjoys being deceived. When somebody deceives you, at best, we just maybe brush it off. At worst, we get mad. One of the things that's in my mind is uh, this coming October 31st is Halloween. And I know there's all this talk online and on the news and wherever. Be careful. Um, some people, they will embed maybe razor blades or sharp objects in sweets and goodies, deceiving the children to thinking they get something good. Meantime, it's, it's intended to harm them. Nobody likes to be harmed. Nobody likes to be hurt. Deception is very prevalent and powerful in our world today. For instance, maybe all of you are familiar with these phone calls, these tax scammers. They call you and tell you they're from somewhere, well, they're from the IRS, usually it's the IRS, I think, or CRA, Canada Revenue Agency. And you're in trouble with the law, and unless you pay up, you have so and so much money that you better pay up ASAP or else you're going to be in trouble. One uh, article that I heard or read was, this one guy got scammed. He bought into this lie. He didn't know better. So he does the thing they ask him to do. He makes the, uh, the financial transaction. And you can't hang up the phone while you're doing it. And so he makes the transaction. And the other guy at the other end, he knows what he's doing. This guy doesn't know he's being deceived. He just thinks he's paying a bill that he should have been paid long ago. So he makes the transaction. At the other end, when the transaction goes through, the guy laughs and hangs up. There's nothing you can do about that, except don't fall for it. Being deceived is a very bad thing. There's a guy by the name of A.W. Toes, and I want to read that, that quote for you. He says this, Of all forms of deception, self-deception is the most deadly. And of all deceived persons, the self-deceived are the least likely to discover the fraud. I want to say this this morning before we get into our sermon on Revelation. Every single individual who's going to be banned, who's going to be condemned to hell, will because he's self-deceived. He believed a lie, and he somehow fell for it. And we could go into all kinds of tangents and rabbit trails on that one, which I won't do this morning. But there's no such thing as somebody saying to God, Okay, God, it's your fault. Should have given me more time or better evidence or more resources. It's not going to be like that. We choose to reject against better knowledge the information he's given us. The thing is, though, with this life, it's not like, oops, I guess I got that one wrong. I'll do it over. Let's try again. You, you won't get another chance. When the end has come, it's over. There is no turning back and saying, let's do a rerun. Let's hit a pause. Let's hit, let's hit the restart. You know, in the computer, you have this little thing, this little round arrow, and you just hit that and it starts over and you can restart where you left. Well, actually, from the beginning. Life is not like that. Once we've fallen for deception and maybe tax issues, we can redo that. We can earn that money back. I can earn that money back. Jesus very clearly warns us against deception. I'd like for, like for us to read some of these verses here. Let's turn to uh, Mark chapter 13. We'll throw that on the overhead here. Mark 13, 5 and 6. Jesus says this, Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. This is deception cloaked in, in a facade of honesty. It looks like it's the real deal, and it's not going to be. Let's go to the next one, Matthew 24, 24, and verse 25. It says, 
False messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. See, I've warned you about this ahead of time. Again, false messiahs and prophets will rise, and there will be many who will fall for it. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, verse 13, he says this. He says, But evil people and impostors will flourish, they will deceive others, and will themselves be deceived. This world will just ooze and be marinated and just saturated, just dripping with deception. How do we avoid it? How do we stay clear from that? How do we not get sucked into this vortex and get drawn into all this deception? We need to be on guard. We need to study. We need to read. We need to be familiar, well-grounded in God's Word. Let's turn to the next one, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 says, Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. Deception is an ever-present reality and danger for everyone. It was in Jesus' time, the apostles' time, in the age of the church. We can never let down our guard and say, well, I have nothing to watch out for. Jesus warns his people to watch. This is an ongoing battle that has been raging since the Garden of Eden. It's raging today too. Today we're continuing our sermon series on the book of Revelation. And today we come to a passage of Scripture where the enemy of God, Satan, goes all out to deceive the world. And as we're going through this series of sermons, it becomes clear this story is written, so to speak, in layers overlapping. It's almost like a wall that's being built. It's a vision that God gives the Apostle John when he's spending time on the prison island of Patmos. The church in John's day was going through a hard time. The Roman Empire was very brutal, very vicious. Persecution and oppression everywhere. Yes, there was times when it would let up here and there for a period of time, but many times just brutal, just very horrible. There were false teachers who had their own agendas in that time as well, trying to get the Christians to, to compromise their walk with Jesus and to adopt and accept other teachings. We find that in the first three chapters in the book of Revelation where the letter is written to the churches, what they should be careful of. And some churches had fallen into some levels of deception, some worse than others, but they were warned to repent and turn back to the original standing with Jesus. So as we continue on in, the, in this book, we're going to see more of that. My desire is that this sermon series is a series of messages that give people hope, not to be gloom and doom and depressing, but hope and encouragement that, yes, deception will be there, but you and I do not have to be victims of it. We can conquer. We can, we can win. It'll be an encouragement for us to stay alert, stay awake, and on top. John was an apostle of Jesus, but he was also a pastor. And in his day, the early church, as I said, went through very difficult times. And so they needed these words of hope, of comfort and warning. They needed to be reminded, don't expect it to be easy. Don't expect it to be smooth sailing. There will be challenges. Many will die. And all of this would be intermixed with deception of many kinds. And the church needed to be aware. One thing that you find when you read stories of history, warfare, deception is usually part of the package. One army trying to deceive another army. Each side wants to outdo the other one. And deception plays a huge role. When you read the Bible story of Adam and Eve, 
Satan's first tactic was one of deception. He knew what he was doing. He knew that if he could get Eve to believe the lie, then he would get access into her heart, into the, into Adam and Eve's heart, and he would be able to destroy them. They didn't think it would happen. They knew they had been told, but they didn't think it was serious. So they fell for the deception. And deception has been going on and is going on ever since. And they couldn't say, well, we didn't know. They had been given instructions. They had been informed. So as we continue our series in Revelation, let's keep in mind, we the readers, we do not have a full, complete picture of what's going on in every area. As I said before, he wrote in symbolic word pictures. And Satan is using even that to try to deceive people. So how do we know we're not deceived? When we do read the Bible, Satan is very ready to put pictures into our minds and hearts of something that is not actually true. And the word pictures in Revelation, they seem and they are extreme. But it does not mean that it's not real, not true. It was written as a letter to the churches of Asia in John's time. And even if we do not fully understand all the word pictures, we do see how God works to protect his own during suffering and in suffering, even though they die. The devil has worked against God, is working against God, and will continue to work against God till the very end. But in the end, we know God is the winner. That's his promise, and that's our confidence. So with that, I'd like for us to read Revelation chapter 12, beginning verse 1 to the end of verse 6. Let's read. Then I witnessed in heaven. Again, this is John continuing on his vision. Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and with seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron and rod. And her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place to care for her for 1,260 days. Let's pause for a minute. I'll just say this. There's so many different interpretations of what this means. Very educated writers with many letters behind their names, convinced they know what exactly what this means, they write books on this. The difficulty is when you read two, three, four, five, or even more of these different writers, they all have it figured out, and they all disagree. So who's right? I don't know exactly what this all means. I'll, I'll give you that. I, I, I'm not that kind of a scholar to have it all figured out. And as time was moving on, new books are written, and the, and the interpretations keep changing. So who's right? The interpretations that were given many years ago, the interpretations that were given recently, the interpretations that are given today, they don't match. There's similarities. There's a lot of similarity. Some are very close, but some are very different. My focus today is not to put this into a neat, tidy package and tell us this is what it means. But what we do see, the overall arcing, the overarching theme is a, is a struggle and conflict between evil and good. Two powerful forces, both out to win. That's important to know. That's, a, that's the overarching theme. What the woman represents exactly, 
We are not quite sure. Some say she represents Israel. Some say she represents the church. Uh, some say the baby represents the offspring of the church. I don't know. What is evident is that God is watching over this event. And God is God allows some evil to happen, but he, uh, he puts the limits and the brakes on other evil. God will limit things up to a point. Then John's vision shifts a little bit. Continue on in verse 7. He says, Then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving, there it's again, deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God in the authority of his Christ. Continue reading. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in in the heavens, rejoice. But terror will come on the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has little time. War in heaven. I thought it was a place of peace and happiness. Well, there's war in heaven too. The battle rages. It's a universal struggle. The battle between good and evil is an ongoing battle. And in this story, Satan loses. We're not given accurate, detailed time frames and timelines for much of this. Some say we are. Some believe we are. But we're given an overarching theme what goes on. God's people suffer. That's a, that's a, a huge theme. Evil is happening. That's a theme. God is winning. There's a victory. For those of us who are part of God's kingdom, we are part of the victory. But Satan's not giving up. Then further on in the vision, when Satan is cast down, he still doesn't stop. He continues his destructive attacks. So let's continue reading verse 13. When the dragon realized he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but she was given two wings like those of a great eagle, so she could fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. There she would be cared for and protected from the dragon for a time, times, and half a time. I don't know how long that is. I'm not quite sure what this all represents. But again, evil is continuing. The warfare is continuing, but God allows it only up to a point. What's comforting to know is evil has limitations. Evil does not have the final say, even though Satan tries, but he's limited. Sometimes people think in this world that evil has no boundaries. And they say, well, if God existed, why did he not stop that or stop that and... And if God loves us the way he says he does, why did he not stop that evil person from killing this innocent victim, this innocent child? And, and, and I think I agree with Ravi Zacharias on this, this part. He said, he put it this way, he said, God is a God of love. That's the highest thing, the highest value of every value that there is. And for God to love us, he has to give us the freedom to choose. That's part of who God is. And because we're in God's image, that's part of who we are. And so God will not restrain a person from every decision they make. There are times he does, but because he's God, he allows certain things to happen. We don't have the full answer why. But he allows it up to a point and no further. Just because bad things do happen does not mean that God is not in control. And so we can thank God in evil times that evil is limited. And Revelation bears that out very, very clearly. Evil will not have the final say. But it continues on. It doesn't get better. In fact, it just continues. Let's read Revelation 13. Start reading there in verse 1. Then I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads and ten horns with ten crowns on its heads. And written on each were 
each head were names that blasphemed God. The beast looked like a leopard, but it had feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. The world, the whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. Evil is not outwitted and evil is not finished yet. Evil continues on. This beast rising out of the sea, even though it's a word picture, and I would, would agree with authors who write, it doesn't rep- mean actually physically a beast like an animal will come out of the water. It talks, it talks about a, an, an authoritative system, maybe a form of government or something, a world power working for the darkness. There's, an, there's a unity and an alliance that is in, in expressed here. The, the horns, the heads, the crowns, all that stuff, those are symbols of power and, and control and domination. A big deception is underway. The world follows after it. It says in verse 4, they worship the dragon by giving the beast such power. They also worship the beast. Who is great as the beast, they exclaimed. Who is able to fight against him? Then the beast was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God. He was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months. And he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name in his dwelling, that is those who dwell in heaven. Verse 7, And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And he was given authority to rule over every tribe, people, language, and nation. And all the people who belong to this world worship the beast. They're the one whose names were not written in the book of life before the world was made. The, the book that belongs to the lamb who was slaughtered. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. I do believe this. I think when John wrote this to the congregation in Asia Minor, when they read this, they weren't scratching their heads. What is he trying to say? They didn't have that problem. They understood the culture of their time. They understood the situation they were facing. They were very much aware, and I think they were comforted. They knew they were in a bad situation, and world, the world power called Rome, as evil and brutal and disastrous as it was, they were suffering every imaginable horror that was, could be inflicted on people. There was nothing they could do about it, and many, many were killed. No one was safe from the oppression and persecution of Rome. In fact, verse 10 says this, Anyone who's destined for prison will be taken to prison. Anyone destined to die by the sword will die by the sword. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. The rescue is not yet. And it's still going on. God's people will suffer. That's very clear. It will not be easy for them. It is not easy now. One writer mentioned that he believed this calls for God's people to endure suffering as God allows it. Don't resist it. You can't fight it, and it does not do any good to fight it. God will deal with it in his time. Some will go to prison. It happened, happened then. It has happened. It will continue. God allows some to die by the sword. Not everybody does, but some do. And for a time, it literally looks as if this, this beast will succeed. And from an earthly standpoint, it will succeed for a while, but the end will come. But before the end does come for this beast, it gets very ugly and very dark. The counterfeiting and deceiving will just get worse. Verse 11 says, Then I saw another beast come up out of the earth. Remember, the first one came out of the sea, and this one comes out of the earth. Again, what all the symbolism exactly means, I'm not sure. He had, te- he had two horns, and th- like those of a lamb, but he spoke with the voice of a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast, and he required all the earth and his people to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. He did astounding miracles, even making fire flash down from, from, um, to earth from the sky while everyone was watching. 
Can you just imagine the deception going on? Let's read verse 14. And with all the miracles he was allowed to perform on behalf of the first beast, he deceived, there it is again, all the people who belong to this world. He ordered the people to make a great statue for the first beast, who was fatally wounded and then came back to life. He was then permitted to give life to the statue so that it could speak. Then the statue of the beast commanded that anyone refusing to worship it must die. He required everyone small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. And no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Wisdom is, re- is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. There have been volumes written on this topic. And here we're going to spend only a few minutes briefly passing over it. We can't do justice to it. What is clear is the beast will go after God's people with vengeance and anger. And in the end, there's a mark that everyone must accept on the right hand or on the forehead if they're going to survive. Again, what the symbols of all of this mean, many different scholars have written much about it, and they do not agree. But we must remember again who John wrote it to, the churches that he wrote this to, and what they were experiencing in that time and what the context was of this passage, this event. What did God want those people to understand from that letter? And how does it relate to us today? Were they thinking, okay, yeah, not for us today, maybe 2,000 years down the road, somebody will get a mark, but us guys, no, that's, that's not for us. Were they thinking those thoughts? No, absolutely not. One thing to note is this, and this is why it's so important that we have people in our midst who become historians, who become theologians, who become students of history. One of the reasons is this. For instance, I don't know how many of you knew this, but during John's time, they didn't have numbers. One, two, three, four. They didn't have numbers. They had ABCs, but they didn't have numbers. Maybe some languages did, but the Hebrews, for instance, didn't have numbers. The Romans, when they would calculate something, they had letters for numbers. I mean, the, the, the number five was a V. One, two, three was written I, double I, and triple I, and then the number five was V. So if you wrote number four, you have three I's and one V, and that... I, 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 and then V, that's four. That's four, and then V is five, and then V plus V, one I is six. The number 10 is X, and X, one is 11. That's how they would write numbers. The letter C is 100. The letter L is 1,000. That's how they would write numbers. And so historians and writers, and this, this is very simple math, they say if you take these letters, these numbers that John talks about, and you put that into context, of their day and their time, it spells Nero. Nero was an emperor who lived during that time. Is that what this means? Possibly. I'm not, I'm not agreeing or disagreeing with this. I'm saying these are all possibilities. But I know a lot of people, they would like it to mean something in the future for our time. But again, these number 666, in that context, in that day, they stood for the name of a man, and this man was in power. Now, again, I'm not a scholar, not an authority on these things, but there's something else here, something much deeper and much, much greater that I want to spend a little bit of time on. Do you know how serious this allegiance thing was? This is an identity crisis. This is an identity issue here. That's, it's far bigger. You know how serious it was in that day? If you lived, let's say, in a village, a Roman official would come through town. He would tell you, okay, take this piece of incense, put it in this fire here, and say, Caesar is Lord. You better do it. Or if you couldn't do it, you might as well kiss your life goodbye. That's how serious this was. Can you imagine that? Your life will hinge on those words. 
It's an allegiance thing, an identity thing. Caesar is Lord. You worship Caesar or you are an, a, a, a traitor to the empire. Some may ask, are you saying the mark of the beast is only symbolic? That it's no actual mark? I don't know. I do know this. In the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, God told the people of Israel, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall worship the Lord your God and worship him only. And, and then he said, through Moses, he said, I want you to write the name of the, the laws of my, I want you to write the laws on your foreheads and on your right, on your arms. I want you to wear the law. Some writers say that when John wrote this, he was, he was using, he's transposing this. He said, this is how serious this is. You're either elite, you'll be aligned or you'll be, have allegiance to the system, to the, to the worldly system, or you'll be with God. You can't have both. You'll be living for one, but not for both. And if you live for the system, you will die. If you live for God, you will suffer persecution and die physically, but you will face God's judgment if you live for the beast. What is clear, people are told to identify with the beast. Take the mark, put your trust in him, your confidence, you live by him. It is far-reaching. And this is tied to the financial situation, the economic situation, and they're dependent on the identity that they're going to give to the beast. And it intersects with every area of life. What I do want to warn us about is, let's not get too much this tied into technology. That's dangerous. I remember back in the 1970s, I was a little boy, and they invented the barcodes. You know, every piece of groceries item, you buy a jug of milk or you buy a bag of chips, has a barcode on there. When that was first invented, people got panicky. Well, that's the mark of the beast. That's the mark of the beast. Really? I wasn't sure what to think. I was just a kid. I'm not saying the beast doesn't use technology. But it's far deeper than that than a barcode on a product or a device. I believe it's an identity thing. What I do wonder is this, and and I'll be very careful how I say this. Will everybody be aware that they've received the mark when they get it? Or have they taken it without knowing? Are they deceived? Well, I just, I only... And in the end, where's your trust? Where's your confidence? What have you built on? Even today in some places, demanding loyalty is so powerful and so much control, it's unbelievable what's happening. I just read recently there's a village in Asia, in one of the countries in Asia. There's Christians in that village, but Christianity is not the religion of that country. And so these Christians, they were told by the community, you cannot send your children to school if you're Christians. And some outsider had visited with these people, and they had said, you know, we can't read and write. We're illiterate. We want to learn too. But they've told us very clearly. Either you conform, get rid of Christianity, you can send your children, or you stay out. You're not part of us. It's an allegiance thing. And it's coming in incremental steps, I think. It's not like just one swoop, fell, bang event. I think it, it can come in other ways, for instance, in ways that we don't even really pay attention to. There's a demanding loyalty a demanding alliance which we cannot be part of. John's congregation lived in a system like that. It was beast-like in nature. Even in our own country, and I know this sermon will go online and I'll choose my words carefully, but whoever listens to it online will know what I mean. 
when the, when the government of a nation starts discriminating against its own tax-paying citizens based on their religious beliefs, because, oh, because you don't agree with uh, alternative lifestyles or because you don't agree with the value of human life in the same way we do, we're going to ostracize you financially. Right now, the government's being sued, which I don't agree with, but at the same time, it's a step in that direction. The deception is there. In 1820-21, there was a Jewish poet and a writer by the name of Hendrik Hein who said, where they burn books, they eventually burn people. He didn't know that in 110 years from his day, the German nation would set on a national program exterminating a whole human race, the Jews. His government was beast-like in nature. Whoever had the courage to defy this henchman, Hitler, suffered death. We know what happened to him. That's what Satan's all about. Control, domination, deception, destruction, and death. That's who he is. And yet he masquerades as an angel of light. It's only this. It's only that. Just And so little by little, in small incremental step, as the proverbial frog in the pot, people get sucked in and seduced. The whole idea of the mark of the beast is to identify who belongs to this world, who belongs to God. And John says, whoever doesn't take it will be, will be ostracized. He won't be able to buy or sell. Again, I do not have a clear-cut, neatly packaged understanding of this, but it's far better for us not to try to transposed to the future. Okay, well, that's far into the future. We don't have to think about that, so we just have to worry about today. No, this is very relevant for us today. In fact, one writer said this, one person said this, and I think he has a very valid point. He said, when we read the book of Revelation, there is really nothing there that we have to say, well, this has to happen first before Jesus returns. Jesus told us very clearly when he returns, it'll be like a thief in the night. People won't be expecting it. But it's not It's not all doom and gloom. It's not all bad. Let's continue reading Revelation 14, beginning verse 1. Then I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of mighty ocean waves of the rolling of loud thunder. It was like the sound of many harpists playing together. Let's skip down to verse 6. And I saw another angel flying through the sky, carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to the people who belong to this world, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Fear God, he shouted, give glory to him, for the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. There's this call that goes out. God is not giving up. God is not finished. He's calling out for people to come to him to believe. And that call is encouraging. Let's continue verse 8. Then another angel followed him through the sky, shouting, Babylon is fallen, the great city is fallen, because she made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. Then a third angel followed them, shouting, Anyone who worships the beast in the statue or who accepts the mark on the forehead or on the hand must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath, and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night, for they have worshipped the beast in the statue and have accepted the mark of his name. Who Who we align ourselves with, who we identify with, will determine where we end up. Those who accept the mark of the beast will live in that deception till the end. And in the end, they will reap the harvest of that deception. They will realize too late 
that it was serious after all. They realized that the beast which they believed and trusted and had confidence in to bring them prosperity, security, and peace will actually bring them destruction, ruin, and death. In short, sin never pays. And in the end, God defeats evil. God triumphs, deception will end, and the very things the world thought would work out for its stability and security will do the exact opposite. So instead of us all tied up, getting all tied up in knots, what does this mean? And is this an actual mark? Or when will it come? Or has it come? Is it here? Are we identifying with Satan? Let's get so in love and in relationship with Jesus that this becomes a side thing. When people are trained to identify real money versus counterfeit money, they never give them counterfeit money. They give them real money and to deal with real money. And when counterfeit money does come in, they notice it instantly. But our world is so saturated with counterfeit everything that it's becoming more and more difficult, even those who want to follow Jesus. What is the real truth? Let's consider this. This world is not God's friend. This world is God's enemy. And the Apostle John writes, whoever wants to be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. It is a battle. The forces of evil are real. They're working hard, trying to gain the victory. But in the book of Revelation, we're given the outcome of the battle, outcome of the war, and God wins. And God's saints win too. We get to choose which side we're on. We're called to identify with Jesus, to give our allegiance to the King of kings and Lord of lords, not to some worldly system, not to some ideology that, oh, it sounds good, looks good, must be okay. So how does this apply to us? Let's read the last, um, go to the last slide here. And this is an old hymn written by a writer by Isaac Watts, and he wrote this in his day. He said, Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies and flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sail through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. Thy saints in all this glorious war shall conquer though they die. They see the triumph from afar by faith's discerning eye. When that illustrious day shall rise and all thine armies shine, and robes of victory through the skies, the glory shall be thine. For now, the journey continues. For some, it's brutal and bloody. For others, it's more easy. We do not necessarily control that. But we're called to stay focused on Jesus Christ, regardless of what the world puts out there, regardless of the deception that comes. Let's just make sure we're not one of the self-deceived. Let's continue reading our Bibles, being in prayer with God, encouraging each other, moving forward. The world will not do well, but the saints can win. It's a story of hope for the church of Jesus Christ. And if you're a servant of Jesus today, you already belong to this victorious crowd, to Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. Death and hell have been conquered on the cross. There is really nothing to fear. Our sins are paid for. We're in a relationship with Jesus. Salvation is sure. We're in good shape. Even when we die. I want you to be encouraged. Take that. Go with it. And live it.
Let us pray. Lord Jesus, some of these words in Scripture are really heavy, difficult, hard to understand. In fact, we don't understand a lot of it. So much, so much of it is still beyond our grasp. But what we do know is this. There's only the right and the left. There's only salvation and condemnation. There's only heaven and there's only hell. Help us, Lord Jesus, to serve you, to be open, to be transparent with our lives, and to be attentive and aware when you talk to us. Help us, Lord, to not be part of the self-deceived. Help us not to fall for the deception of the world. Help us to remain true, focused, and in love with you. May we go in Jesus' peace. Amen.